In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Lisa Godier is our guest this week on Money Tales. Lisa cares deeply about the hair on your head. That might sound weird, but let me tell you why. 25 years ago, she and her husband started an environmental public charity called Matter of Trust. Matter of Trust is famous for running a program where they collect hair clippings from thousands of salons. They then form the hair clippings into mats that soak up oil spills because, as you've likely experienced, hair is a excellent at collecting oil. Let me tell you a little bit more about Lisa. She concentrates on the positive, delivering sensible solutions and nurturing teams dedicated to ecology. Lisa also implements transformational programs that promote renewable resources, recycling, reuse, and repair, including Matter of Trust's eco-industrial hub and its eco-home. The hub is a working model factory with exhibits about clean air, water, and energy. The immersive eco-home located in San Francisco showcases how urban renters can have impactful, earth-friendly apartments and grow edible gardens. Here are three key money topics Lisa hits on in this conversation. First, how forming and running a nonprofit organization has increased her comfort with talking about money. Second, how our family intentionally invests in real estate to provide housing for lower and middle income tenants. And third, how money amplifies the best and worst in us. Lisa is focused on achieving balance to avoid the burden of abundance and also the challenges of lacking financial resources. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Lisa Gauthier. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cami, a topic that has been coming up a lot for me lately is 529 plans. Why is that? I think it's just because of where people are at in the calendar year cycle and getting ready for school or planning for their newborn or young children or grandchildren. But it's been coming up in client conversations and conversations with future clients of Asperian and also in some press interviews that I've been involved in lately. So it's been on my mind. And for listeners who aren't familiar with 529 plans, they are a tax advantaged savings plan that you can utilize to pay for post high school education expenses, college, trade schools, as long as it's a qualified institution, or you can use it I should say, and or you can use it to pay up to $10,000 of private school tuition for K through 12th grade. 
And they're really cool plans. But in a recent conversation with a client, they were sort of pushing back saying, no, we don't think 529 plans are right for us. So we explored that with them and they reached a decision not to do a 529 plan because they wanted total flexibility. They said, our kids might not want to go to school or they might want to do something different. And we just prefer the full on flexibility. We decided to establish trust for them and they're contributing the same money that they would have contributed to the 529 plan to these trusts. So that money can grow and be invested throughout the lifetime of their children and will be available to fund college if they want or whatever future education expenses there are. Or ultimately, under the terms of the trust, the money would be available for their children, the beneficiaries of the trust, to do something completely different. So there's a lot of flexibilities. There's so many different ways. I think 529 plans are great. They're not perfect for everyone. And it's worth really making sure you know what your goals are, what your resources are, and and what's going to best suit you. Glad you raised that, Sandy. It does feel like it's the time of year when people in particular are thinking about setting up money for kids going to school. Well, let's welcome our guest today on the Money Tales podcast, Lisa Gautier. It is fantastic to have you. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. Would you provide an introduction and share a couple pivotal moments that have transpired in your life that really impacted who you are? Sure. My name is Lisa Gautier. I'm the president and founder of matteroftrust.org. This is our 25th anniversary of the charity. My husband is a VP at Apple, and so we've been very lucky that I've been able to work pro bono for all of these years. And we now have 96 partners around the world, and we are are most famous for one particular program on our charity where we collect hair clippings from salons, hundreds of thousands of salons, and we felt them into mats that soak up oil spills because you shampoo because hair collects oil. So now this is expanded to pet fur from groomers and waste fleece from farmers and ranchers. And what this means is that all of our global partner hubs are using local fiber for local solutions. So that's basically a lot of what I do. And two things that have affected me with money. My husband is very relaxed around money. His family is French and he's always been in a very comfortable situation in his life. And he has taught me a lot about that. My family, my grandfather was sort of like my husband, actually. He grew up in Geneva and he was very comfortable. It was very nice to meet my husband and have a situation where I could really begin living within my means and not having money be an issue and really exploring all of the ideas around a balanced class, what I call people that don't have too much and they don't have too little. They're just in that sweet spot. And I saw my husband and his family and I was like, oh, that's where I want to be. <laughs> ah, that's great. Tell us, when did money start having meaning to you and why? Very early. So I got my first job when I was nine. I live in San Francisco. And at that time, there was some people that were making dolls clothes on my block and they needed people to cut things out for a few pennies uh, cutting. I started very young. When I was watching TV, I would just cut and cut and cut these things and I couldn't make money. A lot of the kids on the block were doing it. And then I did babysitting and I worked at an ice cream store. And by the time I graduated from high school, I had enough to live in Europe for a year. Now, granted, this was 1984. So the dollar was very strong. It was 10 francs to the dollar, like a pound to the dollar. And so I lived in Europe for a year and came back and bought a car. 
a secondhand little car, but just to show you how much money I saved up from nine years old up through high school. And sounds like you also were frugal at the same time. You're making money and you're saving money. Yeah, I wasn't a real party girl. I got invited to all the parties because I worked at an ice cream store. (laughs) (laughs) Bring all the goodies along with you. Lisa, was funding a trip to Europe for a year part of your plan? Absolutely. So I didn't go to college. I had some college years later, but I got right out of school and I was in love with this book called My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. If you've never read it, it's hysterically funny. Don't read it while you're drinking coffee. You'll spit take all over the place. But he started a zoo in the Channel Islands between France and England for breeding endangered species. And he had a whole study program there, which was really for zoo owners, zookeepers, qualified veterinarians. And I was just a high school student. But I went there and said, look, I have enough money to just live and volunteer for you. Just let me audit your classes. And they finally said yes, because <laughs> I was very persistent. And that course in zookeeping and zoo management, I use it today. Like it was just the best all around course of how, how to manage people at a zoo. It was just fantastic. But yeah, I knew that I wanted to take off and discover the world with some friends in the beginning and then live in England and study that. What did you learn from zookeeping and zoo management? Oh my gosh. So I really still use it today. So first of all, when you're working with a real variety of people, they were in a very rich, affluent area. So lots of people with money and then lots of people that were grubby kind of people that worked with animals people that knew fundraising. Princess Anne is still, I believe, the patroness of the trust. I worked very closely at that time with the secretary of the trust, the person who ran the whole thing. And he taught me all kinds of stuff. So it was really like, how do you work with seniors? How do you work with people that are low tech? And how do you work with people that are finance or now would be high tech? And how do you work with part-time? I think that was one of the most useful things that I still use today. When you find somebody's passion, they will work for you 24-7 because their mind will always be working for it. And so every single time I hire somebody, I just, this sounds woo-woo, but I trust the universe that they're bringing me this person for a reason. And I find out what is this person doing? Where does time fly for them? Where does time drag? I never put them in a position where time drags. I will never get anything out of them. I find where that passion is for them. And then I say, this is my text number, text me 24 seven with ideas. And everybody does. My charity, 25 years, we have a lot of people there for many years, lots of interns, lots of seniors, lots of, we call it Hotel California, people that go away and come back, go away and come back. And it's because, and I know this sounds corny and a lot of places say, we're like a family, but we really are like a family. I'm a very mother hen. It's very important for me that I find out why people came to us and what it is they love, whether it's some people like the gift shop and live to shop and they like eco products or some people like gardening. So they work in our urban edible gardens. Some people like working with their hands and they do all the felting and the exhibit design and other people like high tech. So we have an online environmental platform where all of the hair donations go through called thehumsum.org for humanity adding solutions, humsum.org. But it's the humsum because if you say humsum, it auto corrects into hummus, which is owned by a garbanzo. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We just find something for everybody. And that way it just makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So Lisa, if we go back to that time when you were living in the Channel Islands, learning about zoology, learning about how to interact with lots of different people and to identify purpose, 
From there, where did you go in your life? And how are you starting to think about money at this time as you kind of financed your year away, you come back, you buy an affordable car with your savings. What's next for you? Yeah. So I learned how to manage all of my money because I only had so much money when I was in Europe. So at 17, I was already figuring all of that out. I've never been a partier, kind of been a little bit high on life, but I always wanted to save my money for chocolate instead of drinks and booze and drugs. So I did have plenty of money. I really never spent it all. And, and when I came back, my original thought was that I'd go to college, but I got hired to help at a place that was a legal accounting firm in San Francisco, small business. And a friend of mine from high school was actually working there. And the woman who I was supposed to be helping was pregnant and she actually decided not to come back. So I ended up keeping her position for eight years and I just really got an entire education on accounting and family nonprofit law, a little bit of restaurant law, a little bit of family law from the owner who actually was struggling with cancer at the end and so had me do a lot of the extra work. And that was extremely helpful. I learned a, a lot of things there. It was an entire education. During that, I met my husband who he was at Stanford. He was French, but he was actually doing a course at Stanford. And I was partying at Stanford. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the girl who doesn't like to party found herself at a college party, huh? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You told us that you learned how to manage money at 17. Would you explain how, how did you learn? That's a young age to have to learn how to manage money. So my whole family, and actually my husband's family too. So one of the things that we really connected on, maybe subconsciously, although we never discussed it, was that my family paid their bills always. We never had any debt and we always lived within our means. And of course, our means were much smaller than other people's means, but that was really important to us. I just never went beyond that and had roommates. And then when I could afford it, because I was working for a legal accounting firm pretty young and I didn't have any college debt, this is a different time. Now everything's so crazy. But when I was 22, I could have my own one bedroom apartment in San Francisco and afford a week or 10 day trip to Europe every year, <laughs> working as a secretary or executive assistant office manager at a small legal accounting firm. You couldn't do that now. Not anymore. No, that is completely changed. It was a nice apartment in the Sunset District of San Francisco, which is a very expensive, you know, now that's, I don't know, $3,000. But yeah, it was just always like that. My husband also, same way, we're very much like that. And I think that living within your means, it means different things to different people. And as your means get bigger and bigger, which when I was first with my husband, he was a student. I was making more money than him. And then he got hired to Apple eventually. And then Apple started to do very well. And our entire circumstances changed enormously. And so what became within our means changed. And there was a little bit of a learning curve with that. Not too much for us because I think we were pretty grounded and older when that happened. But we saw some other people have some issues with that and you have to figure it out. It's like, okay, so one sports car, two sports car. Okay. <laughs> What's interesting is, is that when money hits nerds, it's very different than when money hits maybe bankers. Because <laughs> I have a lot of friends that are bankers. It's funny to see the dynamic of what happens when money hits nerds. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get further into that, Lisa, I'm curious about the money conversations you've had with your husband over the arc of your marriage and particularly in the early parts of your relationship. And then as your wealth circumstances started to change, we're not conservative, like in certain senses of the word, but I was raised a lot by my grandparents and my mom and dad. But when we first met, I think because my family has sort of a European attitude about it and because he's French, we never talked about money. When we went out, he always paid for everything. And when I was cooking, I paid for all the groceries. 
we must have at some point had a conversation about splitting the rent in half. I don't even remember it, but we were never counting pennies. And I think maybe that's because my grandmother was such a penny counter that I was like, I think I'd rather just be careful not to be crazy with money and not have to count every penny. And that would have driven my husband nuts. I think he's the kind of person that if you're out to lunch with him, he doesn't want to divide the check in half. Yeah, I think that money was just never an issue with us. We really just never talked about it because we were not crazy with it and it wasn't going to be a problem. Every once in a while, we actually say like, oh, I might have a champagne problem. We call them and like, I'm looking at something and I think I need a little guidance on whether or not I'm being ridiculous or not. We'll look at stuff. But as I say, we're not crazy. We have another place, which is not that far away from us. It's just in better weather. <laughs> because we're, I'm in San Francisco and San Francisco right now, if I showed you outside the window, is just so foggy and depressing so foggy. in the summer. And so by going into another place, all of our family and everybody and our friends can be there, but we use it a lot. Like it's a workhouse, that place. I swear it's like I do nonprofit retreats there. We do huge parties for the kids and our family and friends are down there all the time. And it wouldn't be like us to have another place like in Hawaii or in Tahoe or in New York or Paris or something, because when we'd be paying for it all year round, we probably wouldn't feel super comfortable and just renting it out all the time. So we'd rather Airbnb that. And we do buy property. We buy like middle income, small apartment buildings with really great protected tenants who are not hoarders. They're wonderful people. We meet them all. They're all on our Christmas card list. We talk to them all. And we're not afraid of renters at all in San Francisco, but we really feel like renting in San Francisco has become a bit ridiculous. And so we have lots of units here and in North Carolina, but all of them are great lower to middle income buildings that we really keep up. And we would rather spend our money on that than other places that we probably wouldn't use that much. Lisa, is that real estate investment your purpose, your mission aligned there? Or is this part of your diversified investment approach? Both, both, both. It's, yeah, it's not part of the charity. Although one of the buildings, the garage of it is used as our model eco home in the garden. So we actually asked all the tenants. They were all afraid that we were going to kick them out when we bought this old building in Coal Valley. And we're like, no, we're not going to kick it out, but you're going to get some field trips in the middle of the day. And <laughs> they loved it. They loved it. So it was, it was really great. We're very lucky. Lisa, tell us about starting Matter of Trust, because that must have been a pretty big overall decision with some financial implications. Yeah. So yeah, we're major founders, major donors of the charity. It's very interesting being in this position where you are both asking for money as a charity and you're a major donor. I sign every check. I am extremely hands-on and I am very careful with our own money in the charity and everybody else's money in the charity. And I think people appreciate that. And I really stretch every dollar to be $3. We get so many in-kind gifts, so many in-kind services. And as I say, I work with a lot of people part-time, a lot of people that are on disability and they're all working for me 24-7 because they love what they're doing. So it's a very interesting situation. And we're about to really expand it now because we're growing this international network thing where we're leaping into much, much higher funding. And it's another learning curve. It's very exciting. I'm actually really looking forward to all of these meetings that I'm in. And anybody who's listening to your podcast can let me know if they want to come check out matteroftrust.org. But it's very interesting to see how money plays out in people. And I don't want to have it change any dynamics with people. So I tend never to talk to all of the other wives and people that I know at Apple about it, for example. If they come to me, I love it. But I'm never like trying to push it out there because I think that that should all happen organically. We're very lucky. Will you talk a little bit about that, Lisa? I, I understand. I understand. But you're in this group of wealthy 
people who are likely looking for philanthropic efforts. Is it uncomfortable to have these conversations? Tell us what holds you back from that. In the beginning, it was small and it was like asking for money from me. Even though I was never taking a salary, it was like, come help support my pet project. And that was very awkward. And I never did that ever. And I would say that I was not uncomfortable with money. I'd always had enough money. And then I had more than enough money until it came to my charity. For that, I was uncomfortable about money for years, but I'm not anymore. (laughs) Now I'm okay with asking for money because it's so much bigger than me. And because it's doing so well and everybody sees it and that's much easier now. But I actually wouldn't say that there are a lot of people looking for where to give money. A lot of people I know are already giving money to lots of places. And so when they hear about us and they want to give to us, that's great. But I'm not going to push it. And everybody hears about because I do talk about the charity all the time. I just don't ask for money for it. But I do ask for his hair. I'm like, don't forget to tell your hair. <laughs> give me your hair. Well, Apple's such a special company, like it's just so amazing. And and it has a very interesting ethos that a lot of people already know that when you give, you get back tenfold. I always say money just amplifies. It just amplifies. So if you are feeling that you are in lack, if you don't have enough food, even if you're dieting, it doesn't matter what it is. But if you feel like you don't have enough quality food or you don't have enough health or you don't have enough stuff or whatever it is, then the money issue is just going to make that worse if you don't have it. And if you have too much stuff, if you're kind of a hoarder or if they're too lonely or you have too big of a house and it's just burdensome, money's just going to expand that. It's just going to make that worse. And so again, back to this kind of balance spot, the sweet spot, it's dynamic when you're balancing. It's not still, but it's like you want this sweet spot all the time and you want to be there. You don't really want to be middle class, but you want to be a balanced class. You want to be in this nice place of balance that you're still interested in life. You're still tintillated and stimulated, but you're not burdensome with too much and you're not lacking with too little. And I think people at Apple tend to get that and they tend to donate a lot. Um, They do a lot. They care a lot about the environment. They care a lot about beauty. They care a lot about luxury. I feel that nature is extremely abundant and extremely luxurious. You feel things that are made by nature and the textures of it are rich and gritty and wonderful and luxurious, opposed to man-made things lots of times that feel kind of cheap and just don't last very long and that sort of thing. So I feel that Apple's all about the materials and the design and the luxury of that stuff, but it's also practical. So yeah, I think that there's that whole culture that goes with it. And there really is just this thing about when I was growing up, if I didn't have enough money for something, like my mother didn't like junk food. And I wanted junk food. So I started working and then I had enough money. It's like, find some useful employment, get enough money, buy it for yourself. Incentives. And you start doing that and it adds up little ways. If you don't have enough, you start working on something, it'll do it. And if you have too much, give it away. And if you start giving your funding away, you start to feel better. Everything that you give just comes back to you in tenfold of feel good. And if you're already working and you're not making enough, then start trying to find time to do the stuff you love and that will start to turn into money. And I know that sounds crazy and it sounds a little bit metaphysical, but I've seen it so many times that for me, it's a fact. That purpose-driven aspect really plays into your idea of the balanced class. (laughs) Lisa, when you were telling us about matter of trust, you said in the beginning you were uncomfortable asking for money. And I'm wondering, how did you get over that hump? I just kept working. It's all about how valid you feel, I think, when you're asking for whatever it is you need, whether you're asking for love or you're asking for press or education or whatever it is. 
before you can instill confidence in others to do what they need to do for you, you need to find the confidence in yourself. And in the beginning, I knew that what I was doing was right. I just didn't know if how I was doing what was right. And <laughs> the whole thing about Apple, but Steve Jobs once said, surround yourself by smarter people. And that will lift you up. If you have these other people, you're like, okay, it's not all on me. They're not judging me when they do this. It's us as a group. And I like these people. I think they're smart. And so now I'm asking for money for all of us. And that's how I got over it. I just worked hard and brought in smarter people who worked hard. And then pretty soon I was like, okay, this validates getting in some big money. You're so passionate about MatterTrust.org. And I'm curious how you got into this segment. The mission is to link surplus with needs. And that can include even needs for education. But it's also just about anything that's stuff, linking gifts and wishes and linking information with lack of information. Yeah, I started 1998. Actually, when we first moved back from France, so I met my husband, he was at Stanford, and then he had to go back and work in France for three years. So we got married and moved there. And I worked there also, of course. And I also studied French a lot. And I got lots of jobs because I spoke excellent English. But yeah, so when some of the people that Patrice had been at Stanford with started working at Next, which was a Steve Jobs small company in between his times at Apple, he came back and interviewed and then he got a job there. And so we moved back here to my family's delight. And then Next merged into Apple just a few months later. So he was then at Apple ever since. When we moved back from France, we were moving into a flat that my mom had. My mom had two flats and she was renting out the bottom one. And so we were going to come back in and help her pay half the mortgage. And she had it furnished, but we had a bunch of stuff in Paris furnished, junky. We were very poor. There was all this cost plus rattan furniture that we thought was very important to us. And we would ship it all the way back. And it was (laughs) big, large, lightweight bamboo furniture that we're going to fill our apartment with. When I came back, we had twice the furniture for this apartment. And so I started to like reach out and see like what places could use the furniture donated. And one of the places was this amazing school in San Francisco where two women had decided to share the principal salary and work two full-time things to help this school that was 50% homeless kids. And I just, it's just an amazing school. So I went there and I was like, could you use this stuff in your library? And they're like, yes, yes, yes. And I was like, is there anything else you need? And they gave me my first wish list. So then I went to houses and businesses and I was trying to fill this wish list and everywhere I went, they had so much more than I needed. So I was like, okay, now I've got a better gift list. And so we started this thing, which is now the humsum, um, where you can make a wish and post a gift and all that kind of stuff. Because if it goes outside and leave it on the doorstop, it gets rained on. And if you just bundle it up and it goes to Goodwill, which is an amazing organization, but a lot of that ends up in Africa or ends up in Chile as just big bundles of clothing that people build houses on because it's mountains of clothing. So I was like, people need to say what exactly it is and find each other and create this community giving and wishing. That's really how the charity originally started. And then we were starting to look at things that were in surplus in nature and abundant in nature. Also, we were getting wish lists from all kinds of organizations. Some of them were working with the environment. And of course, my love with the zoo and everything was about the environment. And pretty soon, within a year or two, we met this gentleman who was collecting all of this hair to make hair mats for hair. And he said, oh, I've got a garage full of hair and I'm a hairstylist. I can't deal with this. And so we partnered with him and we took it over officially in 2001. And we've been doing it ever since. Phil McCrory. Phil McCrory is this hairstylist. Amazing, amazing, wonderful Southern gentleman. (laughs) Oh, Lisa, what a great Genesis story. And it's so impressive how you've organically grown it with your team to be accomplishing so much and to be going worldwide. So congratulations on that. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? 
As I said, we're looking at how we are going to be expanding our programs. I know because I'm on a lot of other boards as well. And there's people from large banks and organizations, large foundations all over the world. And it's a very interesting time for money. We're at a time where Gen Z is just really coming into their own and changing the workforce, where they work, when they work, how long they work. They're very different in all of that. We're coming at a time where the economies are really shifting, not even talking crypto, but just looking at money in general. And so what funding looks like is very different. And even how personal finances look like could be very different. Of course, we're coming across a time that environmentally is extremely bizarre. Working with a lot of people who are looking at geoengineering and weather and what all of that means, water and what are we controlling? What are we still learning about? What do we need to know about soil and energy and water? And those are huge, huge money contracts. Those are government type amounts of money. But we do everything at a very small scale, at a cottage industry scale, with something that cannot be outsourced to another country. You can't take your head for a haircut and send it somewhere. You have to do this with a small thing. And so What does that mean? What kind of power do we have if we have a few million hairstylists around the world that can talk to all of their clients? What valuation does that have? So yeah, it's a really interesting time. And we're talking to extremely large foundations. We're talking to people who are looking at setting up foundations and we're talking to governments and we're looking to see what does this mean? Everybody has hair, a lot of pets out there. It's a renewable resource. So every six weeks we have it again. And it's not AI. It's not robotic. It's a human made resource that people are hungry for right now. It's something every age can understand. And it's almost a currency in a tangible way in a time where everything is digital and seems to be evaporating in our fingers. So yeah, it's a very interesting time. Oh, you're going to be having some really exciting money conversations. Lisa, would you tell our listeners, where is the best place to find you? Yes, matteroftrust.org. If it's about funding, you'll have my cell phone right on the page. You can go to donate button on the side and you can reach us by email. And if you want to donate hair, it's on the homepage as well. It says, do you want to donate hair? (laughs) Very clear messaging. We like that. Thank you very much for joining us on the Money Tales podcast and sharing your wonderful passion and your whole journey. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm really very honored to be on it. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at asperient.com. See you next time.